welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in, the, in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is Seamus MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Kathy Aziz Narain. Kathy Aziz Narain is the Chief Digital Officer at Hogue. In this role, Kathy leads the development of Hogue's digital strategy and transformation to maintain Hogue's position as an innovator in delivering both the highest quality care and exceptional patient experiences. This includes optimizing the relationship between our patients and their health information data, utilizing digital tools to develop, design, and enhance the patient experience, and effectively moving patients from offline to online by way of a comprehensive digital ecosystem. Kathy is a digital product leader with more than a decade of experience in product development and marketing within the financial services industry. She joins Hogue from American Express, where she held various leadership roles, driving digital product, marketing, and data strategies for the company. It was here that she delivered some of the first ever digital solutions for the organization, including mobile experiences that better connect businesses to their cards, centralized data platforms, and in-house design slash creative solutions and teams. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Honestly, you've led the most rewarding career, having been, like I said in the bio, uh, you know, really at the center of digital transformation for the financial services industry with Amex for the past decade and a half, really. And recently you decided to lean into this new opportunity and this time it's in healthcare, but once again, you've kind of found yourself at the forefront of digital transformation. I recall from just a bit of research, you earned your bachelor's degree in computer science. I was curious just to start the whole conversation, like what initially drew you to computers and digital and computer science? I think if I go back to my, you know, college self of when I was making that decision, um, one, I graduated high school very young. Um, I'm South American born. And so my parents migrated from uh, South America to the U.S. I was 15 when we moved here um, and moved here being we moved to New York's. Uh, New York. Mm -hmm. and, and so I'm from New York, um, actually. And so as we came and I went to high school, I got tested. They said, listen, you're, you passed everything. We're kind of just going to make you a senior and you're going to go off and graduate at 16. And so that's what kind of happened. Wow. And I was heading into college and there was this decision in front of me about, um, you know, like any person going into school at that point, what do you want to do? And I had two choices. I was like, I would love to spend all day reading Shakespeare. <laughs> or, you know, I really liked science and the world of science. Maybe I could go do something there. But there was like, oh, my goodness. I, was, I wasn't one of those people that was like coding, mm. really wanted to just be a coder or a programmer or anything like that. Right. And of course, my parents got involved in the decision like, what? You're just going to go read Shakespeare? No, you're going to go do something. <laughs> And fast forward, um, ended up test, you know, going into computer science out of interest of like hearing about it, but not necessarily um, a lot of the history you hear with people going into that path. They had such a passion with computers and tech from an early age. And I, I wouldn't say that I was there. Right. Um, and so I got into it and I loved it. And in my class ended up just being, you know, one of the very few females in STEM uh, related mm -hmm. type degree. Um, it was challenging, but I, at least maybe that's a defining, like, uh, you know, uh, character trait where I really liked hard things and mm -hmm. it was, it's definitely a hard, um, curriculum, but I don't regret it. So I ended up going into computer science, graduating with that and moving into, um, my career, 
uh, after that, very shortly after that. Um, and I guess, uh, Kathy, I mean, computer science and then, and then marketing, <laughs> how did you uh, decide to make that transition? Yeah. So, you know, when I came out of school, um, you know, and I had a one earlier job in between Amex. I went, I was actually at Experian um, for a, it was, it was a very short time period. Um, at that point, the email marketing industry was really big. And Experian actually had a product on the market back then called Cheetah Mail. And it did all of emails for any big brands back in that time period. And the one thing they were hiring were people that could build emails. And so I had taken that job, started doing some of that for some of the big brands. And then in parallel, um, I didn't really like that. It wasn't challenging enough, I'll be honest with you. And so I this uh, there was a role with American Express and they were trying to build a platform within their travel business. Um, and so right up my alley, obviously my programming background fit well, but this role, I, and I'll give the credit to Amex in how I even evolved into the marketing world. It started there a little bit because the role, while it had this programming need, there was a bit of experience design and marketing thinking mm. that was in the job itself. And so came into that role. Obviously, my core of my skill from school of programming and being computer science background was being leveraged. But there's another part I was building up just organically through what the job required, which is just around learning about the marketing world, because what I was building was really geared towards that. Mm -hmm. And eventually that role grew into me owning both the funnel of the product and the marketing of that product. And then where Amex was a really awesome place was they did give you the room to grow into where you would have impact, right? And I would say I'm a person that's constantly into learning and evolving. I feel like to stay with current times and to also keep yourself on the edge that and, and challenge yourself, you, you should be pushing yourself a little bit. So in full transparency, while I started to evolve and take on marketing responsibilities, the world of product and thinking about product and my programming background um, continue to get used because right around that time period, the whole world of MarTech started to be discussed. And guess what? I have a computer science background. So working with technology to bring in marketing tools into the org was actually a great fit. Like you think, oh, let's use marketers to do that, right? But in a sense, they almost need marketing technologists to know how those tools get used. And so these organic things happen where my skill set just naturally was applicable to what was happening in the times for marketing. And more and more, I got exposure into not only the technology side of marketing, but into the, the consumer-driven side of marketing, right? Um, but that's kind of what happened in, a, in the narrative of how it evolved, how I got into it. And then even how um, I was able to pivot back into product in my Amex days. Hmm. Very so, cool. And I guess, Kathy, you know, you talked a bit about always wanting to take on new challenges and not, you know, being satisfied with just the, the status quo. So, yeah. you know, back in 2020, in the middle of the, the first year of the pandemic, um, you took on a new challenge going into healthcare. Um, how did that happen? So that one was an interesting one. Um, I'll be honest, when I was... Uh, first started talking to Hogue, it was pre-pandemic. We started talking, I think, towards the like 
fall-ish time period, probably right around now, actually, mm. in 2019. And so the pandemic necessarily hadn't hit yet. I was honestly loving my career at Amex. Um, and they, when they reached out, at first I was like, no, I'm in New York. I don't really want to move and, and to be fair to Hogue, you know, it's not the only um, organization that had ever reached out. I was, I really loved the brand. Um, I was at Amex for 15 years. So it wasn't, uh, and I, I've gotten my career progression and the ability to do more, take on scope and learn in those, in that time period. And so when Ho came at first, it was like, no, I don't know. Moving to New from New York to California wasn't in the cards really. But they did an awesome job of saying, hey, just come out and meet us and hear about healthcare a bit. Now, the backstory with healthcare and me is I have a, my, my son is seven years old and um, I have a, a daughter now too, and, she, and she's a bit younger. She's not even one yet. But my seven-year-old, when he was born, I remember going in to have him and I... Um, it was such a going through the experience and there weren't, everything didn't go perfect in that delivery. And so I came out of it and I, there was a niggling thought of we could do so much to help if there's more digital, um, not necessarily just tech, because they have tech all over the places and hospitals and clinics and whatever else. It wasn't more tech. It was more if they can figure out how to integrate some of that, it could actually really create a better experience. Mm -hmm. So I left, you know, that experience coming out of it. Now, fast forward in that, in my thinking, I, I always start to play around with this concept of if I do leave financial services, I think healthcare education would be two areas I'd look at. Mm -hmm. Then Hogue reached out. Then I came out, saw Hogue, met the leaders, uh, met my leader, um, Robert Braithwaite, who's the CEO, who I think is amazing. Um, saw the uniqueness and the special side of the organization in terms of how activated they were and wanting to always do the best for the OC market and their and their patient base. And for someone like me, I firmly believe that the best products are rooted in customer mindset, mm -hmm. right? And so the cards lined up where I felt like the organization was definitely setting up the right wheels for a digital transformation story. Um, there would be a great, you know, there'd be a great receptiveness to what type of thinking I'd bring to the organization. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And of course I was unsure because I wasn't sure no one was really moving cross country at that point mm -hmm. <laughs> into a new industry and, and with everything going on. But I will say the, um, a really great mentor of mine, as I was making the decision said to me, he's like, Hey, the, the big thing you think about is like, when you're older, are you going to regret not doing this? because you let all these external things that you have no control over control what you do in this moment. And that's what got me over the line in deciding to say, okay, well, I'm going to give this big risky move and opportunity a chance um, and see if I can bring the knowledge I had accumulated over so many years at Amex um, into the industry. Uh, but that's kind of the, the story of how I got here. Wow. No, that's awesome. I, I, I mean, I think it's great that you actually did finally, because that's a, it's a big decision to kind of uproot the whole family and let's move across the country. But just the background being at Amex and that customer experience and customer centricity, and then that matched Hoag's, you know, values as well. I just think that's so perfect. And, you know, who else 
is going to do this. So, you know, looking at the digital landscape today, where you essentially have these digital identities interfacing with consumers and patients to form these personalized experiences for them, this sort of digital transformation that you've been a part of in the past, but they're now at the forefront for healthcare, it's a big undertaking. It takes a long time to really get it right. So I'm curious, what sort of markers are you using to determine success along the way? You know, there's different markers. Transformation, it's such a big buzzword, right? It's like everybody's talking about it, but what does it actually mean? And it's not just like, if I, I could easily say, hey, I'll measure the things I put out, adoption, engagement, et cetera, but it, it, it goes deeper than that, right? Um, transformation, it's people, it's process, it's uh, culture, it's the tools, it's the tech, of course, um, but it's it's everything, right? It, it's even um, the new talent set you're going to have to bring in. How do they adapt and how do the organ how does the organization receive them and understand them? Um, so I would say there's quite a few KPIs or things that I'm measuring constantly or looking at for signals and indicators. And I would say in the early stage, that's what you're looking for signals for the most part, because you're not going to have enough time or things out yet to say, I have a ton of data to look at adoption and engagement. You have to give things a little bit of time to be um, able to say, I'm firmly on the right path or wrong path, or, you know, totally changing X because of Y. Um, so there's definitely signals that I'm looking at. It signals culturally, as we bring things to market, what does the rest of the org do? You know, how are they reacting to it in terms of not like sending me a praise or a recognition, but in terms of, are they talking about it? Are they also out there telling people this is how these are new things on the market. This is how they could be interacting with Hogue, right? So there's this test, our litmus test almost of um, how does the rest of the org driving? Because it, it touches on change management a little bit, um, which an org like mine will require um, based on how we do things and the changes we're going to ask for and push for, right? Even if you get to a no, at least you asked, right? I always tell people it never hurts to ask something um, it does hurt if you never asked and the answer could have been yes, right? Um, and you then you, you're the last one to find out that the answer could have been yes. And so there's a little bit of litmus test on like the organization, what's happening there. There's a litmus test on the actual products we're putting out um, are the signals that are in the right direction, as in people are signing up, people are using it. Um, what are we hearing from them? We're spending a lot of time right now with the things we put on the market with the customers that we have on them. And even if, and even with people that are not on them and asking them why, why didn't you choose that? Why, what didn't work? Um, all the way to what is working, you know, um, both sides of that story. And then there is, I would say probably the third lens is going to be around um, financially. Like, is there ROI? Like, are we, did we, make the right bets in some of that. Some of the things we're doing are not about that. Some of it is about that. Okay. So are we seeing that return on investment? Um, so signals, for the most part, I would say in that, in transformation, you have to kind of build up to, I have a whole PNL now that's fully functioning, right? Versus um, the early stages, you have to be receptive to looking at the signals, iterating, 
you know, and testing and learning and making some mistakes until you are on some paths that are going to lead to um, the real change. Can I ask you, I mean, um, you know, you've been in, you know, in consumer financial services and now you're in consumer, you know, healthcare, the patient experience. I'm just kind of curious, um, what would you say have been sort of the similarities and differences between serving the patient consumer experience versus, you know, maybe the financial consumer experience? Oh, uh, there's, you know, funnily enough, there's things that are wildly different. And then there's things that are kind of the same. People care about their finances and people care about their health. The degree in which they care varies. If I'm healthy, you know, I care. I'm checking in to make sure everything's good on, on the healthcare side. If I'm not well, the care level, like everything else becomes non-existent almost. And you get really obsessive over that. I would say, especially if you go into something serious, a serious condition or something like that, right? So the emotional state is very different. Mm. On the financial side, I would say people care about their finances. Like I said, everything's going great. And then again, if they get into any financial hardship, if they get into anything like fraud, the care levels activate. So mm. I would say both industries have a level of, I care about what happens in, in this, right? Um, it's a little bit less transient than, oh, I bought this outfit and I hate it, and I'm going to send it back, right? It's a little bit more than that. Where it's wildly different is that healthcare is way more emotional than financial service in terms of the impact it has. If you get it wrong, what that looks like on the other side is very traumatic for people if you, if you get it wrong. The human need is a lot more in healthcare. There's a lot more that feels okay to be self-serve and feels okay to be fully digitized and robotic a little bit in financial service. There's more acceptance there for it to be that way. And then I would say maybe it's an Amex thing, not necessarily financial services, but both orgs, at least with a whole comparison to an Amex comparison. I don't know if this is true of the full industries. Um, I don't, I don't know truly, but from a brand now that I've had experience in both, they really care about who their person is, right? So they, whether it be Hogue, really cares about the people and the community that's going to use Hogue and get access and get help. And the leaders in New York really care about that, as is American Express really cared about the customer and really cared about, are we proving and providing value to our customers and solving anything that might come up as an issue for them? Um Hopefully, I think that answers the question better. Mm -hmm, yeah. I, I feel like those are things I could think of off the top of my head. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, you know, I think you you mentioned that in healthcare, one of the main differences you've seen is this need for the human aspect to always be there. Kind of, um, you know, with the financial industry, it can be a little bit more robotic, but healthcare, you really can't have that. And you've shared that a lot in the past as well. Um, whether it's a digital interaction or a combination of digital and physical, there needs to be that human element always present. And so my question is, what do you believe digital health leaders should be focusing on or prioritize to ensure that that human aspect always remains present? Yeah, you know, it's an, healthcare is so complex, right? When I started this, I would have said my answer would have been just obsess over the customer, obsess over them, right? I would say my answers changed a little bit. Um, 
in in the two years that I've kind of been learning um, on my learning journey within healthcare too. Um, and I would say it's obsess over the customer still, but also really get an understanding of what can help drive influential conversations with the insurers and payers and getting them closer to the customer too. Mm -hmm. Because healthcare has that lens where that relationship is important and it does, it does to some extent, maybe not even some, a lot of extent, drive the experience we're able to serve up to patients, to people in the products we're putting out in why X is that way and why looks this way, you know, they do um, play a role in that. And so um, the other thing I would say is um, if you get obsessive about just anyone that is meaningful in the system. So in my mind, it would be your patient, your, your partners at the insurance level, the physicians, the nurses, the people who touch that patient and are with them along the way, if you get obsessive across those three kind of buckets and really spend time with them, really understand the problems, really understand how they think about the problems, how they define them, and maybe to some extent in being the middle to try to narrate the stories so you can bring some understanding from different perspectives to the groups that are not doing it, right? you can hopefully get to solution things better than others, right? Because you're not just sitting there in the middle. What I mean is you're not just sitting there in the middle saying, okay, well, I'm going to learn, you know, I'm going to work with this insurer and I'm going to learn, I'm going to do my customer research, I'm going to learn, and I'm going to meet with the providers and learn. Well, yeah, great. You learned it. Mm -hmm. Did you bring that info back to the other parties? Like, hey, you know, doctors, here's what your patients are saying, and here's what they think, and here's what they told us, and here's what it looks like when we put it on paper in front of them. And our insurance providers, here's what your the people are saying, here's what the physicians are saying. And my hope is that obsession and that constant, not a one-off conversation, right? Not a one-off meeting that takes you know, we, we all block a two hours, half a year, but maybe some constant reminders and dialogue, and hopefully they're open to that, um, can, can really, I would think, would help drive some difference in how you think about putting solutions on the market. Less so, here's the buzz thing in the industry, RPM, telemedicine, how it all comes together. I'll chat with you. I'll check in with you. I'm less talking about any of those tools. And I'm literally sitting and saying, what is the experience that you want? What does that look like? I really love that, Kathy. And it kind of reminds me, it goes back to, you know, right care for the right patient, the right time, regardless of what the tool or, or technology is, or there even needs to be technology. It's kind of funny to me because in healthcare, you know, we, we use terms like virtual care, for example, but in any other industry, you know, using Zoom to have a conversation is just doing business. So, you know, at some point it's just going to be healthcare, whether there's a video or not. And it's kind yeah. of funny to me how we needed to call it something special to yeah. adopt video conferencing with the patient, but yeah. you know, that's healthcare for you. It's a little, it's a little bit funny yeah. sometimes. <laughs> totally. I, I think also, you know, in line with what you're saying, Kathy, every time you open the news now, there is a new technology out there that's tackling a different vertical in healthcare and from what I've gathered, you're a big proponent of layering on top of the EMR if it's to actually enhance the experience and make the experience right. It's not just about the tech. 
And, um, you know, given that there's all these different technologies, when you're looking to solve problems and not just implement any technology, how do you go about, you know, after you've identified the problem or problems that you're looking for, what's your main criteria for identifying which solutions are actually important? Yeah, I think the um, the way we go about it is um, it's not just research, it's co-creation a little bit, right? So we start, I start with, I'm like, I'm, I know it sounds repetitive, but it is true. Like we think about who are we, who are we solving for? Number one, have we really defined that? Um, once we've decided who we're solving for, do we talk to them? <laughs> like, you know, because you can, you can say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm solving for moms. And then you go off, start building something for moms. But do we talk to them? So mm -hmm. that's another checkpoint. But when you said you talked to them, like, what did you do? Did you talk to them as in you took all the notes, you asked questions? Did you did you really run that in a way where they were able to voice their own ideas? Or did you lead them? Like, there's a lot that goes into the right type of research methodologies mm -hmm. to ensure that we're not leading people to the answers we want them to give us, right? So you, so, okay, great. You have a problem that you found. You haven't thought of who it's for. If you solved it, you spoke to some people that fall into that. Did you come back and show them what you were thinking could solve the problem for them? And the reason this is important is because what people say is not necessarily what they mean many times. So you have to somehow bring to life what you heard and what you understood from them. And if you want to really then decide on what to spend the time on, you got to go back and you got to say, hey, look at this. You said, you know, you wanted a faster horse, right? And here, you know, imagine if um, Ford had come out and said, oh, I, I, here's a, a faster horse. Um, and instead, you know, you, you have to think about that concept of uh, now, is this what you mean? As you drew it on paper now, is that what you meant? And going obsessively back. So for us, the way we're identifying what we do is through that process and through that feedback, continuous feedback loop. Because sometimes even after we've shown on paper and we launch, you learn more things because then the person starts using the thing and they didn't even know they had this feedback. But as they started using it, more things come up that could be useful, right? And that's when I start to make decisions on what other tools need to come into the mix and what other technology could be helpful here and how does it integrate, right? Um, so it's constant conversation with who's the product meant for, who's the solution meant for, and that's how we're making decisions and what the tools need to look like. Actually, it kind of makes me think about how like your story about um you know Ford and you're just having a faster horse. Imagine you know years ago if a patient said, "Hey, I don't want to, I don't want to travel so far for a visit," or it'd be great if you could get me to the visit faster people could have spent um, you know, years trying to build I don't know, a faster vehicle to bring a patient to the clinic when instead a better solution might be, hey, let's just virtually talk and don't have to travel at all. But if mm -hmm. you just asked for like a faster vehicle, that's what you would have gone in instead yeah. of a virtual visit. So um, that's, that's yeah. an absolutely great point. I love the idea of the, the creation. But I think to your point, the big thing is that the iteration, the feedback loop there, mm -hmm. 
So it doesn't just stop with the launch. It's exactly. yeah, there's V1 and there's like 1.1, 1.2. It's, it's going to keep going. Is, is that, um, I'm just curious, like how, how that process translated to um, this uh, uh, innovation that you launched, I think earlier this year, Hogue Compass app. So do you mind maybe sharing a bit more and, and you know, let's highlight that. Like what, what is Hogue Compass and yeah. how did you develop that idea and, and how's that going? Yeah, well, we have two things on the market that we put out. So I'll, I'll do a little pitch on, on just what they were. One is Compass, um, as you mentioned, and Compass was meant to test into one problem we heard loud and clear, right? People's definition of primary care is pretty saturated in the market, right? They see it as this very transactional, um, hey, I see a primary care doctor for everything but non-serious things kind of input is what you kind of hear in terms, right? I'll get my annual, they'll help me do the checkup part. Is everything working okay? And then hopefully everything is great. That blood work comes back, that EKG checks out and you know whatever else in, in those testing comes back good. Um, and if not, they'll send me down the different funnels of who I need to now go see, whether it be imaging, whether it be a specialist, et cetera. And so when we thought of Compass, we said, hey, there's a couple of pieces of that uh, thinking that we know people are just doing it, but they don't love it. One is to the point of, well, how about you just give me the options, the choice, access the way I want it. So physical and virtual, enabling both and making sure that you can access a, the product, um, the world of primary care however you need, whether it be physically, you can come to the location here that we have a Jamboree, or you can virtually access it. The second tier is how do we connect you into the specialist funnel, right? If something is wrong, how do we bridge that? How do we make it easy? How does it not become another handoff mm -hmm. point, right? Because it's very handoff in healthcare today. And the third is um, what other legs um, and information and knowledge and guidance are people looking for that they don't get from the relationships today. So we talked about, you have the primary care, you have, if something's wrong, a specialty care, but what about everyday living, right? And so we brought in a nutritionist, um, nutritionist uh, exercise and mindfulness as three pillars of coaching that you can have access to. And those coaches create in partnership with your primary care, more of a personalized care plan. And the care plan is really around, you saw your primary care, there were some things here that you we think you should work on, and now you have access to these coaches to really help you get to working on those things. So that nutshell is what got put on the market in Compass. So you have a digital app component and you have the physical location component and all those resources are accessible through the product. Yeah, it's really um, cool. So, so yeah, so Compass, so like I said, in, in early stage, launched uh, early April, um, we're hearing a lot of positive things, but we're also learning a lot of things. And so the nice thing with a product like this is we're, we are learning, but we're not just learning and shelving it in a book. We're learning and iterating as we speak to figure out, is this really going to impact and in a meaningful way? Um, and give people a different version of healthcare that you know they've been talking about, they're asking about, but the definitions that are out there, the products that are out there are still meeting the same bar that they're used to, to some extent. 
Um, the second is Nona, and this one is really focused on postpartum and moms who delivered um, a baby. And so the idea, and it's not an idea, what we heard loud and clear from moms is, again, I feel transactional in the healthcare system too. Like I had a great birth experience, especially the moms at Hogue. I loved my time delivering at Hogue. I got to experience that firsthand, mm. my little one that I, I had um, late last year. And it's an amazing experience. It's an amazing um, facility, amazing nurses. My doctor was all, everything was great. But then you leave and you leave and you're recovering to some extent or getting back to, you know, post-pregnancy or pre-pregnancy, I guess. And um, you have the baby and a lot's going on and you go through different milestones. And so this product is a 24-7 support through guides who are um, backgrounds or ex doulas and lactation consultants, mm. and potentially some of them are past L&D nurses, labor and delivery nurses, and they can answer questions real time at any time of day. So for, for that mom going home after delivering um, at the hospital, you know, you kind of feel like you're taking some support with you. So those are the two that we recently did. And both of them were baked in. We looked at the market to see what problem spaces were. And both are actively being iterated and tested into and thinking through, did we get the solution right? Amazing. I'm curious. So like something like Nona, which which seems like an awesome experience for for the mom and having 24-7 access to the whole care team. I was curious, um, was there a lot of change management that had to happen internally in terms of the care team saying, hey, you know, these are new expectations for us that didn't exist before. We never had to be in contact digitally or 24 seven with the patient. And, and oh my gosh, like now we have to do this. Was like, how did you navigate that? Well, we, we hired, <laughs> we treated it as a product. We didn't, we, you know, the last thing I want to do is add more burden to roles that are already very rich and full, right? Mm -hmm. Um, our nurses that are delivering babies, they have a job and it's a very important one. They have to stay focused on that mom that's coming here and having a baby. And the goal was not to take away from that at all. So as we think about products, we are thinking about what do we need to add into the ecosystem um, to support that, right? And so the mom um, that's accessing that service, they're we added resourcing to specifically be able to support that service versus saying, hey, let's just strap on more mm -hmm. onto a person who is already full, right? So that was not um, what we did. And um, question for like the broader experience you've had with digital now here. So I, I mean, I'm assuming in the past, a lot of times patients would choose their health system or provider based on you know who they thought the best physician was, who had maybe the best results and all that. I'm curious, are you seeing an environment now where the quality of the, the digital consumer experience is playing a much bigger role in why patients choose and stay with Hogue? Or are you able to see data on, on that impact? I mean, Hogue from a brand perspective is still really a compelling piece of the narrative, right? Um, your quality of your physician, which is why when you guys mentioned before, you're like, hey, you always say there's this human element to digital, right? Within healthcare, there is because the quality of the clinical advice, the quality of who's saying what to you still matters. Mm -hmm. Even if it's through the best, fanciest, easy to use digital system, this is not an, an Uber driver. This is in the terms of like 
hey, I don't need to know all your qualifications for you to drive the car from point A to point B necessarily. From a healthcare perspective, it matters if I'm going to take the advice about what happens to me because I've been diagnosed with X, or even topically to take the advice to say, you have nothing to worry about. You're great. You're doing healthy. Like, who are you going to trust with that advice, right? Now, what you see is different age groups have different sensitivities to that, right? And so um, different demographics have different sensitivities to that. So the more healthy on the spectrum that I feel and I am, the less concerns I have. I'm more willing to try things. I'm more willing to explore ease of use, convenience, digital access starts to matter a bit higher. Not true for everybody, to be fair, but you see it more. And then as you get later in different stages of life and milestones of life, and things do start to pop up, trust, that trust factor still, is still really important. Like who's giving me the advice, who's telling me what to do, does matter. Um, and I don't know if that's a hope. I think that's an everybody thing. Uh, I feel like whether I was here in Southern California or I was in New York, that would still be lens in which I hear people talk about um, healthcare with. That said, I think um, for non-serious things and conditions and or parts of the healthcare journey, people are definitely looking at more easy to use, right. quick paths, uh, digitally friendly, makes a difference. Um, and you are seeing that in the market in spades, right? Um, it, it different when you get to the more serious things or chronic things, the decision-making is a little bit different. That makes a lot of sense. It does. Uh, Kathy, on the previous podcast, this is the, the last question that I wanted to really, like, I, I want to get your opinion on this because I, I feel like it'll be phenomenal. But on a previous podcast, you actually mentioned how you go about cultivating innovation and a transformative uh, or transformational thinking amongst your teams. And you kind of put it into three buckets. You said, one, you inspire a culture of intellectual bravery, uh, two, encourage critical thinking, and three, in, uh, expect and encourage failure uh, for iteration. And I really love all those points. But what I was really curious about is how do you mitigate potential implicit bias that a team might have? Um, especially when you're designing something that is for such a broad user base, the, the consumer experience and the patient experience, now, how critical is it to ensure that uh, the bias of the team is illuminated? Um, are there specific processes you put in place to account for this? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think um, bias is it's such a hard topic because of your innate like, you know, the unconscious bias that people talk about, right? Your innate upbringing, background, um, so many factors that can drive it. Um, that said, one way to help with mitigating that is making sure that when we're doing work, there's diverse perspectives at the table, right? So when you're hiring your team, there's two sides of that, I would say. When you're hiring your team, you also, you should be thinking about diverse talent sets, um, diverse people, diverse types of people um, within those skill sets that you're looking for to have in your team. And so that's one part of the pillar in my mind, right? You In your team, as you're hiring, challenge yourself to have hire people who also don't necessarily think like you do. It's very, 
it's it's very easy to interview and you meet someone you're like oh I'm gonna that person I see eye to eye in so many things it's really hard to go hire the person that you felt didn't see eye to eye in some of the things that you're thinking are they're right my thought is always to hire people smarter than yourself right and be okay with that I, I say that all the time and there's a reason you do that you don't do that just because you're like oh I'm saying it because that sounds great you're doing that because you will never know everything no matter what leadership role you're in you don't know everything and you never will and so you have to be willing to now bring in a team with skill the team you can learn from, you'll be contributing. Absolutely. They're learning from you different things. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't be scared of that. And so a combination of a diverse team and diversity I'm using broadly, but I mean it across many spectrums of things, right? Whether it be um, skill, um, ethnicity, gender, all of that, thinking through that, having that at the table. And then remember, one of the big ethos of our team is staying grounded with the customer. Mm -hmm. So we are constantly, when we're trying to solve problems, we're not going to just bring in, because um, just because it's digital, I'm not just talking to people who people have stereotyped can only use digital. Mm -hmm. You're trying to talk to every spectrum to see who is who's the product meant for and not use this... Um, idea that oh because this person is xyz that makes means that they're technically savvy or they should be the ones i'm talking to so we're always consciously pushing ourselves like when we looked at our panels of who we're talking to from a customer research perspective to did we bring diverse thinking mm. into that mix so we're hearing everything we need to um i think those two i don't know if it answers and solves it fully mm -hmm. but it's ways in which we, I think, are you are, are activating to mitigate some of that. Yeah, I love that. No, that, that it's awesome. It's like diversity across the spectrum, right? Like on your team, hiring those people, and then the panels that you're speaking with, and the customers that you're talking with it makes a lot of sense. Um, just being mindful of your time, Kathy. Let's jump over to what we call the fast five lightning round. Is basically okay. five quick questions to get to know you better for our audience. Uh, first question we have is, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Okay. Um, hmm. There's many books I've gifted from lots of product books like Inspired, Lean Startup. I mean, you know, you have the books of the time, so they become popular. I think one that I probably consistently did, no matter what new book came out, was called um, uh, Tribe of Mentors. Mm -hmm read that but it's um timothy ferris uh wrote it and it's just literally more of a collection of stories across many successful people and and what they talked about as the driver of their success mm -hmm. and then the there's another one i'll call out which is probably more personal read it's called uh think like a monk uh by mm -hmm. jay shetty and that one i've been gifting a little bit because i do feel when you're running on 200% all the time, sometimes it's good to like read something that reminds you to live in the present, not just run away, always thinking that you know what tomorrow is about, um, but really something to ground a little bit more holistically and at home for myself uh, with my family and how do you be more present and think about the present. And so I think that's when I've, I've, gift, I've been gifting a little bit more. Mm -hmm. you no, know, I love, I love all those books. That's great. 
Um, question two, who is a person dead or alive you'd love to meet? Probably Einstein and Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> that'd be a great dinner table. <laughs> with, yeah, yeah, at the same time, yeah. I'd like to have a dinner with Einstein and Steve, both of them at the table too. I would yeah. actually do that one. Yeah. That would be cool. Uh, question three is a bit different. Would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? Um, ability to read people's minds. Mm. Yeah. I like it. We we do ask a, a follow up. What if you couldn't turn that off? Oh gosh, then maybe I changed that. I don't know. <laughs> super strength or super speed. Yeah. That's true. I don't know if I want to do it all the time. Well, let me. Can we put it in true product thinking? Mm. I would iterate that process to say your stop button. Like you can just turn it on. Yeah. <laughs> it's only a superpower if That's it actually great. is like. I love having this. Uh, maybe there's a turning on and off button or something. Um, maybe the next in line would probably be speed. Yeah. I don't know. Because it'd just make me do more things faster. Exactly. No, I love that. Um, question four, you've been in healthcare now two years. What is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? How, um, I mean, out coming outside of industry, and seeing what's happened there. I think in healthcare, some there's so much that we've overcomplicated, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And I know there's people that will tell me there's regulatory things involved and there's this involved. And I get that, but it's complicated to the point of like, should should we gut check and recheck it, right? Um, I think other others would be like surprised at how overcomplicated. Mm. <laughs> some of the things are that I would think, oh my goodness, why? Like, why is that so complicated? Mm -hmm. um, that's yeah. probably one of them. Yeah, I love that. It, it's funny, especially since you're coming from the financial industry as well, where things are often overcomplicated and so yeah, it, 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 I, 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 more overcomplicated in healthcare. Right, right. <laughs> I totally agree. I love that. Uh, the last question we have is a kind of pandemic lockdown related question. What is one hobby you or hobby or activity you've gotten into since the beginning of the pandemic? I know you're a new, uh, not a new mother, but a, a second born. So yeah. that took up some time, I'm sure. Probably, but. I wouldn't, pandemic, if it's pandemic related, obviously my, my little one coming into uh, fruition, my son's seven, she's going to be one in about two-ish months. Um they take a lot of my time, mm -hmm. but in a good way, right? Um, but I would say from a pandemic perspective, one thing that I've done a lot more is literally be more um, present in, mm -hmm. and live in the moment a little bit more than I mm -hmm. did before. I'm more conscious of it for some reason. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, all these things I took for granted, you know, they kind of went so fast. So what are you, what's the new norm look like and how are we enjoying that? Even if it's simpler, even mm -hmm. if it's not as busy as everything else used to make things right. Um, I'm kind of enjoying that and continue to really appreciate some of it and keep it even mm -hmm. though, you know, we're doing more again. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. And it, it's such a good reminder, like having children, like seven years old, he's probably going off to school during yeah. that time. So it's like, it's a great reminder of like, life moves fast yeah it's so fast and then you blink and I'm yeah. like wait what 
what yeah. just happened? Like, you know, 10 months is gone. What, what happened then? So I'm trying my best to like capture as much as I can as the days go by. Wow, that's awesome. That's great. Um, well, thank you, Kathy, so much for coming on the show with us today. You shared a ton of wisdom. I love the fresh perspectives that you've brought to this industry. And uh, really just on this conversation alone, I can tell like you're doing great things and it's really awesome to have you here. Um, for our audience, you can find Kathy on Twitter. She's at K-A-Z-E-Z-2-2, I believe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, awesome. it's, it's so funny. I, I should use that Twitter more. You would think I would do, do it more, but I feel like I lax on it quite a lot. Yeah, no, you're busy solving problems. I get it. Um, well, awesome. That's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, you can visit www.seamless.md. Kathy, again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.